This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. So we're talking today with Corey Doctorow, who is a writer of science fiction and has a lot of other uh, credentials to his name. Um, and he's an expert in uh, media literacy and related topics. Um, and we're at the Mohawk Mountain House at the uh, NYSEIS Education Information and Technology Conference in 2018. There were so many fascinating things you said today, Corey, that it's hard. I took so many notes. I'm going to try to pick out just a couple of themes that I think would be most interesting for our school audience. Um, you talked a little bit in the beginning about um, flexible computing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could define that a bit to begin with. Sure. So it's, it's one of those things that we don't have to think about even because all of our computers have this flexibility. But um, historically, this is a pretty new thing. We used to build these gem special purpose calculating engines. If you wanted to calculate a ballistics table, you would wire together a ballistics ca table calculating engine that would produce these tables for you. And uh, during the Second World War, the effort to uh, code break the German codes led to the creation of the first general purpose computers, what, what are called Turing Complete von Neumann machines, named after Alan Turing in the UK and von Neumann at the Princeton Institute here. And um, these computers can run all the programs that we can express in symbolic logic. And that is a great blessing in that uh, every time someone improves a computer to do one of the many flexible things a computer can do, like serve as the controller for a pacemaker or for a subway train or for your phone, uh, because it's all the same kind of computer, those benefits were down to all those other applications. But it's also kind of a, a curse because we don't know how to make computers that are almost Turing complete, that can run all the programs except for one that gives you trouble. Like we can't make a computer that can run all the programs that are useful but not malicious software. Um, as the entertainment industry keeps uh, finding out the hard way, we don't know how to make computers that can be used to distribute lawful content but not infringing content. Um, we don't know how to make computers that uh, are secure, but that can't run malicious software. This is a real problem that we are still coming to grips with. Um, one of the, the uh, anecdotes you told that was a real shock to me, and I, I hope you'll be able to uh, recount it, is about the John Deere tractor and how so many... Um, forces kind of come together in those relationships with just that one that one machine. So to tell that story, you really have to start in the Clinton era. And we were trying to figure out what to do about copyright on the internet. Uh, Al Gore just had the National Information Infrastructure hearings, the, the Information Superhighway hearings. And we decided to demilitarize the internet and start making it uh, into a, a space where commercial actors could, could play. And there was a concern about what to do about copyright. And they introduced this bill in the Clinton era called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. And it has this, this provision, Section 1201, that makes it a crime to break a copyright restriction or copyright access control system, what's sometimes called digital rights management, or DRM. And at the time, it was mostly used to stop people from altering their DVD players so that they could play DVDs from overseas. 
it's not really a copyright infringement to buy a DVD in Mexico or in Japan and then bring it home, but they, the entertainment industry wanted to maximize their profits by windowing releases. And at the time, there was concern among activists and scholars that as computers spread into more domains, that this law would become applicable outside of entertainment. It would end up everywhere. And that's just what's happened. So John Deere tractors, just like everything else, are full of computers. And those computers are used by John Deere to maximize their revenue by controlling how their customers use their products. So if you're a farmer and you spend a half million dollars on your tractor, you might sensibly think that you can decide who repairs it and when, or that you might be able to do what farmers have done since time immemorial and repair it yourself, take apart, put it in the engine, turn it on. And in fact, if you do that, what you'll find is that your John Deere engine won't recognize the new part until you pay a couple hundred bucks for John Deere to send someone out to your farm to enter an unlock code on a console on your tractor. Uh, not because it can't, but because it won't. I recognize that part. It's just a way for John Deere to get a piece out of every repair, even the one you do yourself. And moreover, the John Deere tractors gather telemetry on your fields while you drive them around. They know about the humidity of your soil and they take the, the uh, torque data from the wheels and they know how dense your soil is and they know where they are. They have centimeter accurate location. And so they generate all this useful information about how you should broadcast your seed but you don't get to see that information. That information is aggregated by John Deere for sale onto the crop futures market. And then you can get limited access to it if you buy your seed in a package from Monsanto. And they'll give you an app that tells you how to plant the seed using your own data that you yourself can't access. And because it has these digital locks, and because the digital locks protect the copyrighted operating system of the tractor, it's against the law to remove the locks. And it's a felony to produce a tool that lets you remove those locks. So the Copyright Office holds hearings every three years on limited exemptions to this rule. And John Deere has gone multiple times to the Copyright Office to say, you don't own your tractor. I mean, you own the physical object, but the software is only licensed to you. And since you don't own the copyright to that software, you don't get to decide how you use your tractor. We do. You have to arrange your affairs to benefit our shareholders, not you, the tractor owner. Which would um, argue that maybe farmers should look other places for their tractors. Uh, unfortunately, there's only two big tractor companies, and they both have pretty similar policies. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's happened in the same time that we've seen the growth of computers is uh, thanks to a lot of factors, but in including the dismantling of antitrust law under Reagan, we've seen the concentration in every market. And so we're left with three or four entertainment companies, three or four tractor companies, three or four oil companies, three or four big banks. And it is very hard to shop with your wallet these days. You really, I think we've, we've hit the limit on what we can do by shopping with our wallet and we're getting into the territory where we need congressional action. So if we look then at um, digital locks and blocks and how that relates to uh, classrooms and our kids and teaching and learning in schools, um, can you talk about uh, the monitoring of kids and the, the, their computer use um, through their microphones and cameras? And sure. you talked about the one-to-one -one laptop programs and how some of that um, real innovation in teaching and learning has its downside. Yeah, well, you know, I think understandably schools that have one-to-one -one laptop policies want to do some loss prevention. They want to make sure that they can recover the computers. And so they install software on them that by its nature is covert. So it tries to hide from the user so that if the user is a criminal who's stolen the laptop, they can't uninstall it. Um, and that allows for covert access to the camera, the microphone, the file system, and so on. 
And this has proved to be very problematic. So we've had school administrators who've used this to spy on their kids. Um, most infamously, it was the Lower Marion School District just outside of Philly that, that kind of made national headlines doing this. Um, we've had school administrators use it covertly, but also now we have increasing overt use by school administrators who say, by the way, that laptop that you're required to carry for your classes, at any given moment I could be watching and you'll never know. So you better be on your best behavior all the time, which acts as a real break on the genuine expression of who you are. And if you think about all the things that you've ever done in front of your own computer that were really about you and not anyone else's business, you know, whether that's having a conversation with a loved one or getting dressed or any of those other things, this is, this is a, a potentially very toxic relationship. And then finally, those computers are intrinsically less secure. If you have a computer that's designed to run code that the user can't see or interdict or reconfigure, then malicious software that can impersonate that code can run without being seen or interdicted or reconfigured by the user. And so you put the user at risk not just of being watched by their administrator, maybe in inappropriate ways, but being watched by voyeurs, by being watched by criminals and, and all kinds of other people. This keeps happening. It's software designed to allow the right people to spy on us gets used by the wrong people to spy on us. And ultimately, we're on the horns of a dilemma where we have to decide whether we make our kids less secure by not spying on them, and then maybe they lose their laptops or they do something bad that we could have otherwise interdicted, or we make them secure by making their computers amenable to being spied upon, not just by us, but by anyone who can impersonate us to the computer. This does sound like the horns of a dilemma for sure. Um, how then do we educate our kids and what should uh, digital literacy look like for students these days? Yeah, so I like to think of problems as um, falling into kind of two buckets, right? One is when we think about a problem and how we can solve it so that we fail gracefully. And the other one is we think about how we solve it so we can succeed. And so, um, I think a lot of the emphasis has been on success, right? If you watch everything your kids do on their computers, you're always there and you're always perched on their shoulder and you're spying on everything they do and you have sensorware on your network. You can find every bad thing they do and you can tell them off for it, maybe turn it into a teachable moment. But that fails very badly because the chances are you're not going to be there for everything your kids do. They're going to have multiple devices, including ones you don't have any insight into. They're going to figure out ways to use the devices that you do have insight into that will defeat your surveillance of them. Um, they will graduate from school and find themselves in environments where they're using devices that are unlimited and where they're going to have to rely on their own intuition to figure out how to be safe on them. And so I think we've had a lot of emphasis on how to succeed, but not enough on how to fail gracefully. Failing gracefully means teaching kids that the grown-ups around them are, are resources that they can call on when they get out of their depth, not to punish them for having circumvented an access control, but to have accepting, understanding conversations with them and to help them contextualize the stuff that they've seen or the activities that they've been a part of that were outside of their comfort zone. And if we do that early enough, if we give kids the space to start failing early enough when the stakes are very low, then we can let them make the kinds of mistakes that they can recover from with our help that will give them both the trust relationship with us to come to us when they get out of their depth and also the self-reliance to figure out how to resolve their own problems. And again, it's the horns of a dilemma. Do you let your kids 
get into trouble so that they can learn how to get out of it? Or do you try to keep them out of trouble to begin with? And I think we can't just do one of those, right? I don't, I don't advocate turning, you know, uh, uh, shoving the kid out the door, locking the door, and, and tell, telling them to come back in three weeks when they figured out the world. And I think all of us can recognize why that's not good. But we should also not have a system where we never let them out the door and never let them take some risks because that creates the same problem where they are incapable of navigating the world on their own. You talked about um, kind of the, the juxtaposition of, of looking at all of this in terms of optimism, pessimism, and hope. Yeah, sure. And could you expand on that, please? Yeah. As a science fiction writer, you know, I know that we have no business predicting the future. Science fiction writers have made a lot of futuristic predictions, and almost none of them have come true. be amazing if none of them had come true. That would mean that we were underperforming random chance. But we're hardly oracles. And I actually think that's... Um, a very uh, good thing. If, if the future were knowable, then it would follow that it was inevitable, that what we did didn't change the future. And I'm inclined to think that we can change the future and that the job of science fiction is to inspire people to demand a better future or to warn them off of a worse one. And so for me, rather than being optimistic or pessimistic, making a prediction about how the world will turn out, I like to think of myself as being hopeful and hope is the belief that you can materially alter your circumstances to find some new place to perch from which you might see some other way to materially alter your circumstances and find another place to perch. In computer science, we have this idea called hill climbing. Oftentimes uh, in computing, we want to traverse a landscape that is too large to be known and that uh, by the time we mapped it out, it will have changed. And so we have to proceed blindly without knowing the whole terrain. And hill climbing analogizes software to an ant. So an ant has got these front-facing eyes, it can't look up, but it has all these legs. And when it's standing, it can tell which of its legs is on the highest ground. And the way that an ant gets to high ground is it takes one step. And then it asks its legs, which of its legs are on the highest ground, and it takes another step, and another, and another. And in this stepwise fashion, without knowing the terrain, it can always reach the local peak. And so for us, rather than trying to plot a path from A to Z, and in recognizing that the first casualty of every battle is the plan of attack, I say let us just find a thing we can do in our lives that materially improves our circumstances in the faith that when we get there, we may find a new thing we can do that will materially improve our circumstances. And to do that together, to try and find better ways to relate to our kids, to relate to our technology, to build a better future. We talked at the end, near the end of your talk, about um, about school safety, and um, part of that is monitoring kids, and part of that is about the actual the actual actuarial data mm -hmm. about school safety, sure. and and um, we've we've had. Uh, lots of instances of school shootings, et cetera, and I know that many of our own schools are grappling with um, how to make their schools safer, including having armed security guards and so forth. Um, could, you, could you review for us um, what you said there? So understanding and mitigating risk starts with a clear-eyed uh, actuarial view of risk. Right? What, is, what is it that you actually need to worry about um, and this is often very different from what it's easy to picture. Uh, things that are easy to picture, we tend to overrate the likelihood of. 
And for me, it's very easy to picture a school shooting, partly because I've seen them on the news and partly because it's, you know, it's my worst nightmare. I have a 10-year-old who goes to middle school. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. When I try, my brain shuts down with how terrible it would be. But I also can read an actuarial table. And if my kid is going to die from a gun, the most likely way she'll die is by suicide. The second most likely way she'll die is by intimate partner violence. The third most likely way she'll die is by accidental shooting. Right? And so if we're going to worry about her safety in school, those, none of those are things that happen in school. And there's a, a thing called allopathic risk, which is when you have a cure that carries some risk, and that risk is greater than the disease. So you may know if you're a woman uh, um, that uh, breast screening advice has changed. So there's a certain percentage of breast screenings that will create a false positive for cancer, right? It's, the test isn't perfect. We know what the rate at which breast cancer occurs is. We know what the rate at which false positives occur. And we know what the risk of even a biopsy, routine biopsy to rule out a false positive is. And the advice has changed to move breast cancer screenings later into women's lives unless they have a, a genetic risk of it. Because we actually know that if we screen all the women at a certain age, that the likelihood that we'll kill one of them by accidentally misidentifying a breast screening and then botching their biopsy is greater than the likelihood that they'll die of breast cancer. And by the same token, a school full of armed guards is more likely to have a school sh shooting, an accidental school shooting, remember accidental shootings are the most likely way that you'll die, than, it, than the school will actually have a school shooter. It's difficult to manage that risk with stakeholders. We see this with aviation, where you know, there are a lot of aviation risks. Very few of them relate to terrorism. Uh, and terrorists can also choose their targets. And so you know, when you create huge backlogs outside the security perimeter at, this, at the gate, you create a target that a terrorist is just as happy to target as the plane itself. Terrorists are not anti-aviation activists, right? They don't target airplanes because they don't like airplanes. They target airplanes because it makes mayhem, and there are other places to make mayhem. And so um, it's very hard for the TSA, for Congress, to ever back off from a security measure once they have it, because having convinced us that it's a risk worth mitigating, they have to somehow convince us that they've either done something about it or admit that they were wrong all along. And so I think that particularly at this moment, as we're thinking about what we're going to do about school safety in the wake of some extremely tragic and terrible high-profile school shootings, that we really need to um, recognize that this is often a one-way ratchet. That once you say that we need armed guards in our schools, you don't get to say, well, we decided we don't need them anymore. You know, sometimes we do. I remember flying two weeks after 9-11 and there were teenagers from the National Guard in the airport with carbines. Scariest, scaredest I've ever been in an airport. At one point I remember a 17-year-old kid who was too young to shave bent over to tie his shoelace with his carbine across his back and I was staring down the muzzle of this child's automatic high-powered rifle and I realized that I was trusting my life to this kid not having forgotten to put the safety on his gun and he was a child and I was scared and eventually they took the children with carbines out of our airports. I still don't even understand how they managed to, but you'll notice no one has ever blown up an airplane with their shoe. The only reason we know that you can blow up airplanes with your shoe is that the person who tried it failed horribly and it's been 10 years and we're still taking our shoes off. And so like those one-way ratchets don't open again 
and they're recurring costs, and once you start spending a dollar a year on on uh, something that you have to spend a dollar a year on every year, that is a dollar a year that is permanently removed from your school budget for everything else, including things that your kids are actually at risk from, like sexual predation, like um, uh, intimate partner violence as they get older, like STIs, like all the other, like traffic fatalities, right? Like if you have to take a dollar out of your driver's ed budget, where cars are the thing that kill the hell out of Americans, and put it into the armed guard budget, you are going to kill kids. You're going to have kids who will die of preventable car accidents because you spent the dollar that you could have spent on teaching them how to be better drivers on some uh, dude with a rifle standing at the school doors. So as a parent yeah. and a writer yeah. and um, a person who has spent a lot, of, a lot of time in schools talking to teachers mm -hmm. and kids, um, what is your kind of last word? What do you wish I had asked you about that scenario and your role there? So I'll tell you that uh, the thing I worry about the most in terms of education, given my own education, which I rate very highly, uh, is that the computerization of learning and the quantification of teaching, the adoption of standardized testing, has instead of leading to what we were promised, which was an age of mass customization and, and le learning that was tailored to pupils and into one of uh, real rigidification, stratification of our learning. And when I think back on the moments where my life turned, my educational life turned, they all involve my finding a thing in my education that excited me and the teachers near me getting the heck out of the way. Right? I remember in my second grade year, I walked into the classroom, it was before the bell rang, there was a copy of Alice in Wonderland on the bookshelf, I took it down and started leafing through it, I sat down and started reading it, the teacher who had been my mom's teaching partner and knew she would be cool with it, she said, she said nothing, she didn't call me to class, she let me sit there all day and read, right, so here we are, 40 years later, I've written 20 something books and I'm married to a girl called Alice, right, and that was that teacher getting the heck out of the way while I learned. And I worry that an age of computers, where we're monitoring how our kids learn all the time, we're quantifying what our teachers do, we're, we're in this, locked in this toxic relationship with standardized testing, we just don't let kids goof off and find the learning opportunities for them where they really feel like, the, like they understand why they need to be learning something, where they really feel the passion for it. And just let them run with it. Let them fly. That's, and we didn't talk about that at all today, but that is the thing that I worry about most in terms of my own kid. Well, I'm glad that we ended with that then. Cool. Thank you so much, Corey. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.